You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Verse 46, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 46. And we'll read now together verses 46 all the way down through verse 54. 46 through 54. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour which, in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray together. Our Father, we commit now our time to you, our minds, our hearts. And it is before your word that we all must um, submit and humble ourselves. We thank you that we have the promise in your word that your spirit will be our teacher and your word can be our guide. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would sanctify us by your word and teach us and instruct us and help us to yield in submissive, humble, loving obedience to you in all that you command and in all that you tell us. We ask your blessing upon this time. Open our eyes now to your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be looking at this miracle this morning that occurs at the end of John chapter 4. This is, we are told down in verse 54, the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Do you remember what the first sign was? Remember what the first sign in the book of John was? The first miracle that Jesus performed? It was back in chapter 2. It was when he turned the water into wine. Do you remember that? That was the first sign. And John says that was the first of Jesus' signs. At no point before that did he, in any of his childhood or teenage years or his young adult life, ever perform a miracle. His very first miracle was in Cana of Galilee at the wedding when he turned the water into wine. Now John tells us this is the second sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee and some people think that John here is contradicting himself, and they say, see in uh, John's gospel here a contradiction. Uh, people like Bart Ehrman, have you heard the name Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman is a liberal critic, a cynic of Scripture. He used to be, quote-unquote, a Christian. He uh, used to go to a major Bible college here in the States. I forget which one it is now. It's a hard time keeping all of the false teachers and apostates, keeping track of all of them. Um, Bart Ehrman has apostatized from the faith, and now he sees in Scripture all types of contradictions. And this is one that he points to and uses as supposed proof, is this supposed contradiction between John chapter 4, the end here, where G John says this is the second of Jesus' miracles. And then if you go back and you start reading at the beginning of the Gospel of John, you read through, you get to John chapter 2, and it says he turned water into wine. And then at the end of John chapter 2, it says Jesus did a bunch of miracles in Jerusalem and that many believed on him when they saw all the signs, plural, that he was doing in Jerusalem. And then at the end of chapter 4, it says this is Jesus' second sign. So critics and skeptics like to say, well, you have the first sign in John 2 and then a reference that he did all of these other miracles. And then John here makes the mistake of saying that this was Jesus' 
second sign when we have him performing his second and many more signs in Jerusalem back at the end of chapter 2. Everybody follow the supposed contradiction? It's not a contradiction at all because when John says that this was the second sign that Jesus performed, he didn't mean this was his second miracle. He meant two things. Number one, this is the second sign that John records for us. This is the second of all of Jesus' signs that he gives us the details of. But it's also second in another sense. It is the second sign that he performed where? In Cana of Galilee. The first of his signs, which was his first miracle, his first sign was in Cana of Galilee at the wedding. This is now, John says, the second of Jesus' signs that he did in Cana. The first sign he did in Cana was the turning water into wine. This now, the healing of the nobleman's son, is the second sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So it's not a contradiction at all. One of the things that skeptics and critics love to do is point out stuff like that. Another thing that they love to do is to try and deny that Jesus actually did as many miracles as he did. And one of the ways that they do that is by saying, this miracle is much like other miracles that we find in Scripture. Now, we read two miracles for our Scripture reading, Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 15. Remember that? Now, each of those miracles have something in common with this miracle recorded at the end of John chapter 4. And it is that Jesus, in all three of these instances, John 4, Matthew 8, and Matthew 15, healed somebody at a distance. He wasn't physically present. And so many people look at the similarities and they say all three of these descriptions are actually descriptions of the same miracle. So since they have this one element in common, that Jesus healed somebody at a distance, they say what's really going on here is there was one time that Jesus healed somebody at a distance. And then Matthew, when he records that episode, has that miracle in mind, but he gets a few of the details wrong. And then later on in Mark 7 and Luke, when they record those instances, they each get a few of the details wrong. And then in John chapter 4, John is thinking of the same miracle, and he gets a few of the details wrong. But the one detail that they all got right was that Jesus healed somebody at a distance. And so that similarity is supposed to tell us that all three of these describe the same miracle. And that's just silliness, and you should be able to spot right away that that's silliness. Because there are enough differences between all three of these accounts as to make the possibility that they're all describing the same miracle just ludicrous. Absolutely unbelievable. Let me give you a few of the differences. There were three recorded miracles where Jesus healed somebody at a distance in the Gospels. The first, let's just begin with the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, which is also recorded in Luke chapter 7. Matthew chapter 8 is the account of the centurion slave. We read that. The second is in Matthew chapter 15, and it is also recorded for us in Mark chapter 7, and that is the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And then we have John chapter 4, which is not recorded in any of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's not recorded in those Gospels. It is only recorded here in John, and this is the healing of the nobleman's son. Now, that's quite a distinction of details, is it not? Who is it that requests the miracle in each of those accounts, or requests the healing? In Matthew 8, with the centurion, it is a centurion who is a Gentile, a Gentile man who makes the request of Jesus. In Mark 7, with the Syrophoenician woman, it is a Gentile woman. And here in John chapter 4, it is a Jewish man. So Jewish man, Gentile man, Gentile woman. These not even similar, are they? And what is it? who is it that's healed in each one of these accounts? In the case of the centurion, it is his slave. In the case of the Syrophoenician woman, it is her daughter. And in the case of the nobleman in John 4, it is his son. Slave, daughter, son. What is it that they are healed of? Well, in the instance of the centurion, his slave was afflicted with paralysis and fearfully tormented. 
With the Syrophoenician woman, her daughter was afflicted with demon possession. And with the nobleman's son, we find out later in John 4, he was afflicted with a fever. And the location of each of these miracles is different. The centurion met Jesus in Caesarea, or sorry, Capernaum, not Caesarea, Capernaum. The Syrophoenician woman meets Jesus in Tyre, and the nobleman in John chapter 4 met Jesus in Cana. So are these all three describing the same miracle? Let me tell you something, if they are, take your Bible and burn it and forget the whole thing, because if it's that wrong, it is that wrong. It's not wrong at all. And besides discrediting Scripture, I don't know what one gains from trying to conflate all three of those miracles into one account and to say that they're describing all three of them. I mean, listen, if Jesus could do it one time, do you not think he could do it three times? He could, couldn't he? He could do it for three different people on three different occasions, three different locations of three different diseases for three different requests. And furthermore, I don't think you and I should assume that he only did this three times. At the end of John's Gospel, John says, if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world could not contain the books that would be written. So John had a plethora of miracles to choose from, and these three miracles with the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, the centurion slave, and the nobleman's son, that's not a comprehensive treatment of all the miracles that Jesus did at a distance. I believe we can safely assume that that is a representative sample of the type of miracles that he performed at a distance. So he was able to do this without even being physically present. So those are three different miracles, and the one here at the end of John's Gospel with the nobleman's son, this is the only place where this miracle is recorded. So now the discerning Bible reader, you and I, as we're studying our Bible and reading through it, we should ask ourselves, why is this miracle at the end of John 4 here? Why does John record this? If indeed he had this plethora, this multitude of of miracles to choose from when selecting his material, why does he select this miracle, and why does he include its record here? I think two possible answers could be given. First, I think it is because John knew, and he knew Matthew, Mark, and Luke well enough, John knew that the other gospel writers did not include this miracle, and John throughout the gospel selects sayings of Jesus, preaching sermons of Jesus, incidences from Jesus' life and travels that the other gospel writers don't mention. In fact, nothing in the first five chapters of John's gospel finds a parallel in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. The first five chapters of John's gospel are all entirely new material and not included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so John does this all the way through his gospel. He selects things that the other gospel writers chose not to record. A second reason, and I'd say this generally speaking, John tells us that everything he recorded in here is written so that you and I might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him we might have life in his name. So this miracle is recorded with this aim in view to convince you and I that Jesus is who he is, that he is who he said he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and that by believing that, we might have life in his name. So when we read through the Gospels, we and we read of miracles, either in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, this should never be our response. Wow, cool. Instead, when reading and coming across a miracle in one of the Gospels, we should say to ourselves, what does this miracle teach me? about the nature of Christ, the nature of God, the plan of God, and the plan of Christ. What do I learn about Jesus from this miracle? If John has included this miracle so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then we need to ask ourselves, what it is about this miracle that is intended to move me, to convince me that Jesus is who he is? What is it about the miracle that shows to me his messianic credentials, that Jesus is the Christ, and that he is worthy of my confidence, worthy of my trust, worthy of my obedience, and he is capable of giving me eternal life. 
This miracle is intended to move us towards saving belief. So how is the miracle designed to do that? And that's what we're going to answer as we go through some of the details. One last thing that I would note about this miracle just in general is in John's mind, and so it should be in our mind, it is connected to the miracle in John chapter 2, the turning of the water into wine. There's a couple of things that John does to remind us of that miracle, almost as if to call it to our memory, so that as we read through this miracle at the end of John 4, and then the third miracle that John records for us, which is the beginning of chapter 5, that you and I are comparing John 4 miracle with the John 2 miracle. That is, we're comparing the healing of the nobleman's son with the turning of water into wine. Now, why is it that John wants us to compare and contrast those miracles, or why would I think that that's what John wants us to do? First of all, there is a connection between these two miracles, and by now I'm talking about the miracle of the turning the water into wine and healing the nobleman's son. There is a connection between these two miracles in that both of these miracles occurred in Galilee. Further, both of these miracles occurred in Cana of Galilee. And third, twice in this passage, in John 4, John makes reference to the healing or the turning of water into wine. Sorry, the healing, not the healing, the turning of water into wine in John chapter 2. Look at it in verse 46. He reminds us of it. When he came into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. It's almost as like John's trying to recall that to our minds, so that as we read through this, we're thinking of the water miracle. Also, down later on in the passage, verse 54, this is again a second sign that Jesus performed. The second sign would remind us what? Of the first sign again. So at the beginning of the passage, at the end of the passage, John reminds us of that first miracle. Now, just so you and I can have it fresh in our minds, I want you to turn back to John chapter 2. We're not going to spend any time other than just to read the passage so that you got it in your mind. And then I'm going to quickly compare and contrast these two miracles. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely... Then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Back to John chapter 4. So with that miracle in our minds, the turning of water into wine, now let's compare and contrast it with this second miracle just so we can get a handle on why it is that John kind of wants both of them in our minds. You'll notice the very first difference, and by the way, this would be an interesting thing for your own private study. If you want a fun a fun little exercise, take both of these miracles, read them side by side over and over and over, and then sit down and just compare and contrast them. Write down all the differences and similarities. Just in about, I don't know, probably 60 seconds or so, I came up with 12 quick differences, and I'm just going to give to you four that I think are really important to John's purpose. Four quick differences. In the miracle with turning water into wine, the miracle was done at simply the power of his will. His will. You notice that Jesus never said anything to the water. He never spoke any words over the water. He never said anything about the water. 
He spoke to the servants, and the servants obeyed what Jesus said, and by a sheer act of his will, without a command, he simply willed it, and the water turned into wine. In John chapter 4, the miracle is done, obviously, with by his will, but there's something that's key in John 4, and it is the presence of his word. Go, your son lives. The man believes the word of Jesus and leaves there. Later on, he finds out that his son was healed at the very moment that Jesus said that your son lives, and he believed. And what is the central feature of John 4? It is the word of Jesus. Remember, the Samaritans believed his word. Not seeing any signs, they believed his word. The nobleman believes the word of Jesus. That is the central feature. With the wine, it's his will. Without speaking a word. John 4, just by the power of the word spoken, that's the central feature. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't speak it in contrast to his will. Contrary to his will, the will was involved. But in John 4, it is the word which is preeminent. His ability to heal simply by speaking it. Another difference between the two is that in John chapter 2, with the water turned into wine, the miracle is done over physical elements, created elements. Water in water pots turned into the fruit of the vine, which is grape juice. In John chapter 4, it's not physical elements, created materials, that is being um, that is being miraculously acted upon. It is a boy, a person, a disease, an illness, an animate object that is the sun. In John 2, it's inanimate. It's just created elements. In John 4, it's created elements in the sense that it's a boy, but it's a person. A third essential difference between the two is that in John chapter 2, at the healing of the water into the wine, you don't have a life and death situation, do you? What happens if you run out of wine at the wedding feast? Well, embarrassment, social stigma, bad reputation. It's kind of a shame. People are disappointed in you. But life goes on, right? After all, it's just beverages. Yeah, there are social ramifications to it, but at the end, it's just beverages. What's at issue in John chapter 4? It is a life or death situation. The man is desperate. The fever has racked his son. The son is dying. He's on his bed. He's incapacitated. He can't move. It's a life or death situation. So obviously, we have here two different types of miracles, don't we? Two different degrees of significance and importance. And it's not to minimize the miracle in chapter 2. But I want you to recognize the issues at stake in chapter 4 are much more severe than with the first miracle. And a fourth difference, and this is the central feature of John chapter 4. Jesus healed in John chapter 2, or sorry, Jesus did the miracle in John chapter 2 in his presence. And in John chapter 4, it was in his absence. In John chapter 2, he was in the same room, presumably, with the water pots and the water. And he spoke to the servants, and they did this. And right before him, while he was at the wedding, he was invited to the wedding. He came to the wedding. He was there at the wedding. He saw the issue. did a miracle. In John chapter 4, he is invited to this man's home. He doesn't go to this man's home, and yet he does the miracle in a town that is some 16 miles away. So Jesus is not present for that. So those are the differences and the similarities between these two miracles. Now, obviously, John's point is this. If Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if he is the Creator, the one by whom he spoke and the worlds leapt into existence, if that is indeed who he is, the Word manifested in the flesh, then you and I would expect, we would expect, that he would have the power to manipulate physical elements of creation like wine and water, and that he would have the power over life and death and illness and sickness and healing, right? And what do we find between these two miracles? That he controls both the animate and inanimate objects, uh, or inanimate objects and animate objects as well. If he is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the omnipotent creator in human flesh, 
if he is that, then you and I would expect that he would be able to perform a miracle simply by an act of his will or by the spoken word. And what do we see in both of these miracles? That indeed, he is able to do a miracle by an act of his will without saying a thing about the elements of the miracle itself and also by the pronouncement or the speaking of a word of power to effect that miracle. If he is indeed the Savior of mankind and the Son of God, the Word made flesh, then you and I should expect that he would be able to grant physical life to a sick boy, right? After all, if he's the one to whom we are to come for spiritual life, for hope, for life after the grave, we would expect him to be able to control and providentially and sovereignly control life before the grave. It does not make sense for you and I to think that we can trust him for the greater if we cannot trust him for the lesser. The lesser is physical life on this side of the grave. The greater is spiritual and physical life on the other side of the grave. So if we are to trust him for spiritual life, then he ought to demonstrate the ability to, to have power and sovereignty over physical life as well, and he does. And if he is the creator of the world, then we would expect him to be able to perform a miracle, not just in his presence, but anywhere he wants, right? It shouldn't matter if he's 16 feet away, 16 miles away, 1,600 miles away, whether he's across the bed from a dead person or whether he is across the room or across the country. It doesn't matter. And so in John, we see that when it comes to our physical needs or our spiritual needs, when it comes to needing him for provision, doesn't matter whether he is present or absent or what we are talking about, between these two miracles, we have all of our bases covered, and we can say with confidence, he is over all, and he is sovereign. And he is able to perform a miracle over animate and inanimate objects, He is able to perform a miracle either in his presence or in his absence. He is able to perform a miracle by a work of his will or by a work of his word. He is able to give physical life and he is able to give spiritual life. And as such, I can trust him as the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, I have life in his name. That make sense? Now, that's what we learned from the miracle. We haven't looked at any of the details yet. And we need to dive into the details. Lord willing, I'm hoping that between today and next week, two weeks, that we will be able to wrap up this miracle in chapter 4 and then we'll start chapter 5. I found in the past that my prophetic abilities are somewhat lacking, and I don't put much stock in them, but we'll see what we can do. We'll dive in here, see as far as we get, see how far we get, go as far as we can, and then we'll just pick it up again next week when we have more time. So I'll just preach till we run out of time. There is a third miracle in John chapter 5. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be discussing these two miracles, the healing of the nobleman's son, and then the healing of Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda in John 5. And those two are recorded back-to-back, I think, for reasons as well. Every one of these signs is significant in John's gospel. So let's pick it up in verse 46, John chapter 4, verse 46. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now you notice from verse 46 that there are two places mentioned, Cana and Capernaum. There are also two persons mentioned, the son and the nobleman. Two places and two persons. So let's deal with the two places first, since places bore us more than people do most of the time, at least for most of us. Two places, Cana and Capernaum. Cana, you will remember from chapter 2, was sort of a backwoods, uh, hick town, off in the middle of nowhere. It was in the hill mountainous country, about halfway between the Sea of Galilee, which was in the north, and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. So if on the map of your mind you remember the little thing that we did with the room, Judea in the south, Samaria, Galilee in the north, you have the Sea of Galilee over here and the Jordan River, which went down to the Dead Sea, and then over on this side beyond the wall we have the Mediterranean Sea. Halfway between the Sea of Galilee up here and the Mediterranean Sea, right up here, 
is Cana. Cana's in the mountainous region. Cana is a backwoods town. It's isolated. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, it is so insignificant of a city that if it were not for John's mention of the city of Cana, we would not know anything about it because it's not mentioned outside of the Gospel of John anywhere else in the Bible. Today, it is just a ruin. It's mentioned in John 2. It's mentioned in John 4. And John mentions it again back in chapter 21. And if it weren't for those three references to Cana, we wouldn't know anything about it. In Jesus' day, it was a small, very small, small village of people. Out in the woods, it was a cul-de-sac. It wasn't on the way to anywhere. In order to get to Cana, you had to go out of your way. And you had to go out of your way to get there. And once you got there, you would wonder why you ever went there to begin with. It's just a small little town out in the hills. Capernaum is quite different. Capernaum was not in the hill country. And it wasn't halfway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is really not a sea. It's more like a lake. We would call it a lake. It's on the northwest corner. It's a seaside or lakeside village city. It's very significant. It was much more populated. A lot of commerce and trade. Everybody went in and around and through Capernaum. Uh, People made their living in fishing in the city of Capernaum. It was a big sort of to-do thing. It was right on the lakeside there. The Cana is up in the mountainous regions. The sea, uh, Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level. And they're about 16 miles apart. Capernaum over here, uh, Cana, I'm forgetting even the towns I'm talking about, Cana right here in the middle, 16 miles separated them. Now it may be that Jesus was on his way to Capernaum, where he eventually would settle, by the way, because Capernaum was sort of Jesus' adopted hometown. After he got to his adult life, he left the city of Nazareth, spent most of his ministry in the city of Capernaum, obviously traveling around the whole northern region of Galilee from Capernaum, but many of Jesus' miracles happened in Capernaum. A lot of his teachings took place in Capernaum. In fact, the big bread of life discourse in John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life, um, that whole passage there, that was all spoken in uh, Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spoke in the synagogue at Capernaum on more than one occasion. He was kicked out of there. And Capernaum, in spite of all the time Jesus spent there, all the miracles he did there, and all the teachings that he taught there, Capernaum is not noted for its belief. In fact, Capernaum is noted and singled out for judgment because of its unbelief. Matthew chapter 12. uh, Oh, I didn't bring that piece of paper up here with me. Oh, you know what? That's going to be significant later on. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, uh, You, Capernaum, will not be elevated to heaven, will you? Instead, you will descend into Hades, because if the signs and wonders which were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented and remained until this day. So when it came to the issue of belief and unbelief and hardness of heart, Capernaum as a city was worse than Sodom. That's almost unthinkable. But it goes back to what we talked about last week, that a prophet is not without uh, honor except in his hometown. And where Jesus spent the most time, Capernaum, his adopted hometown, where he taught the most and, and did the most miracles, they were the most hearted of heart, hard-hearted and the most uh, wicked and the most stubborn and unbelieving of all the places that Jesus visited. Well, that's Capernaum. Now, it may be that Jesus was on his way to Capernaum, so he stopped in Cana to visit the family that he knew there that had been married some eight to ten months earlier at the wedding in chapter two. But while he is there, this man, this nobleman, heard that Jesus had come out of Judea up into Galilee and that he was at Cana, and this nobleman came to Jesus. That brings us to the two people. So we've talked, first of all, about the two places, Cana and Capernaum. Now there are two people mentioned in verse uh, 46, and this is where it gets very interesting, at least for me. 
These two people, the son and the nobleman. Let's talk about the son for just a second. The son is sick. The man's son is sick. Now, when I say son, what do you have in your mind's eye? What are you picturing? I'm picturing a boy lying on a bed. We find out later on he has a fever, so he's fainting, uh, probably passing out from time to time, very ill, unable to talk, uh, sweating. Have you ever had a sickness where you uh, fluctuate from having the sweats to the chills and you can't get warm enough at one minute and you can't get cold enough the next minute? So this boy has a fever. But do you notice in the text that no reference is made to the boy's age or to the son's age? He's just called a son. There's no indication here that he was a young son, an infant. But yet, in your mind's eye, like in mine, were you picturing somebody young? Say 12 years old and younger. That's what I was picturing. But I point this out only because I want, I want you to realize how often we have these assumptions that we bring to the text, and in our mind's eye, we're seeing something that the text doesn't necessarily reveal. Keep in mind that this son could have been a boy, could have been an infant, could have been a teenager, could have been a young man over 20, could have been in his 30s, or even a 40-year-old man with a fever. Because no reference is made to the age of either the nobleman or the son. The nobleman could have been an older man in his 70s, 60s or 70s, who had a, an older son, a full-grown man, who was also sick. But the man or the son, the boy, if you will, or however you want to think of him, he was sick with a fever. And I would assume that he was incapacitated and unable to travel. Why would I say that? Do you notice that the nobleman asked Jesus to come to his house to heal his son? That means that the nobleman believed that Jesus had to be present in order to heal his son. He believed that Jesus could do the miracle, but believed that Jesus needed to be present in order to do the miracle. So he requested that Jesus make the 16-mile trip from Cana to Capernaum in order to heal his son. Now, if the man believed that the son had to be present with Jesus, or that Jesus had to be present with the son to heal him, then if that son was able to travel in any way, I think the man would have taken him from Capernaum over to Galilee to see Jesus and not have spent the extra day or two that it would take for Jesus to get from Cana over to Capernaum to heal his son. So he is desperately sick. Death is creeping up on him. And I think that the boy is incapacitated or the son is incapacitated. I say boy, see, because I still got that in my head. I think that the son was incapacitated to the point where he could not travel over to Cana to see Jesus. Now, what about the nobleman, the nobleman or the royal official? He's sometimes called. The, the word literally means royal one. Who was he? Uh, whose royalty was he part of? What was his office? What do we know about him? Who is this man? Those are all questions that have engendered a lot of speculation, a lot of ideas, and I'm just going to give you a couple of them here. He was a royal official. Now, there was only one king or tetrarch over the region of which this man could have served under, and that was Herod Antipas. Now, some of you probably remember the name Herod, right? You've heard the name Herod but maybe not familiar with Herod Antipas. You may be more familiar with Herod the Great. So I'm going to give you now the part of the sermon that is backed by popular demand, the history lesson. Not really popular demand, but here it is anyway. And this is good for us because as when we went through the book of Acts, we have to get our minds around some of the key political figures and rulers of this region because they they enter into the scene every once in a while. So I'm going to kind of give you an overview here a little bit of the Herodian dynasty. Herod the Great's mentioned at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. And he is popular because, well, he's well-known, I should say, not popular. He wasn't popular with anybody. He is well-known to us because it was he that the wise men or the magi visited when they came to worship Jesus. And he's the one, and they said to him, where is the one born king of the Jews? And you remember it was Herod the Great who said, well, when you find him, you come back and tell me so that I can go worship him as well. 
Herod didn't want to go worship the one born king of the Jews. He wanted to cut off any challenges to his throne. So that is why, after a period of time, when the Magi didn't return, he went and he had all of the children, two years old and under, slaughtered in and around Bethlehem. Herod the Great was a wicked, cruel, bloodthirsty, malicious, violent, oppressive tyrant. An empty the thesaurus describing this guy. That is how cruel he was. He was hated by almost everybody. But he ruled over a stretch of land almost as big as what David and Solomon ruled over. Everything from north to south, Dan to Beersheba, river to, river to valley, the whole thing. He had a kingdom almost as big as uh, David and Solomon. But he ruled under the authority of Rome. So he was the king over that area under Rome's authority. And he ruled from about 40 B.C. all the way up until about 4 B.C. when he died. Herod the Great died. Now, Herod the Great had more sons than a small Mormon family would have. He had a ton of sons, and they took the region, his area that he ruled, and they broke it up into three different districts. Each one of those districts was given to one of his three sons. Now in the south, let's begin with the south, down in the south in Judea and Samaria, that was overseen by a man named Archelaus. Archelaus. Archelaus was hated by everybody in Judea and Samaria. He ruled for about ten years over that region, and then Rome replaced him with a Roman ruler down south. In the north, above Galilee, up in this area back here, over Jordan and Damascus, Rome appointed Philip, Herod the Great's son Philip, who ruled from Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, which was kind of eastward inland. Over the region in the middle, over Galilee and Perea, where Jesus now was, ruled Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. Now at this point, keeping the Incest, adultery, divorce, remarriage, incest, impurity, immorality, remarriage, and incest, and did I mention incest of the Herods, is quite a task, keeping all of that straight in your head. In fact, you read about it and you get to the end and you think, I wish I could floss my brain, because you just want to clean it out. And I'm not going to go into all of it, but I want to give you a little bit of a picture so that you know who Herod Antipas is. Herod Antipas, okay, so remember there's the three sons, right? We've got Archelaus and Herod Antipas, and Philip. Now, there was a fourth son. Aristobulus was his name. Aristobulus had a daughter, Herodias. Herodias married her father's brother, Philip, and had a child, so she married her uncle. She had a child named Salome, Herodias, and Philip. Now, Herod Antipas divorced one of his wives, so that he could convince Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, to leave his brother and marry him, which she did. And when she did that, she brought her daughter Salome with her. Now, that is adultery by any definition. That is adultery. In fact, that adultery in the highest office of the land so angered a man named John the Baptist that he called Herod Antipas on the carpet for it, and Herod had him arrested. And then do you remember at the party, it was Herodias' daughter Salome, who was offered anything, and she chose the head of John the Baptist and had John the Baptist beheaded. That was Herod Antipas who had beheaded John the Baptist. Now, the intrigue and manipulation of this just gets worse because Salome, who was the daughter of Herodias married to Herod Antipas, who once was married to Philip, and actually Philip was her father, Salome married another one of Herod's sons, which would be her mother's uncle, her great-uncle. Isn't that sick? You just want to floss your brain after that. And you say, how? I mean, there is, that's just twisted. 
and depraved. That was the, that was the Herods. That was their family. And this went on amongst all of them just constantly. There was this leaving and this immorality and the intermarriage and all of that going on. So Herod Antipas is the ruler over Galilee. He is an adulterer. He's married his brother's wife. And he is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. This is the Herod that Jesus calls that fox. And that was not a compliment. That was a slur. It was an insult. It's a condemnation. It's that Herod. Now here is a royal official of Herod Antipas. Somebody who knows Herod who is coming to Jesus because his son is sick. Do you see this connection? This is quite amazing, isn't it? You have an official who works in the administration of the man who beheads Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who is coming to Jesus for a miracle, and he believes that this man is able to work a miracle and to heal his son. Now, in trying to guess the identity of the nobleman, people have tried to identify him with two different people. And because I didn't bring my piece of paper up here, I have to actually flip back to two passages. One is in Luke 8, and if you're quick, you can turn there, but I won't, I won't expect you to. In Luke chapter 8, there is mention, and I'm just going to tie, I'm going to make two connections real quick here with Herod Antipas. In Luke chapter 8, Herod is mentioned in, a, in the context of Luke giving us a list of people who follow Jesus around. In Luke chapter 8, verse 2, in verse 3, Luke says that the twelve disciples were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So in Luke chapter 8, you have a list of people, one of who was Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, who was Herod's steward, who was a believer in Jesus and supported him financially. Now, some people have said, and this is entirely speculation, I'm telling you this up front, entirely speculation, and I don't believe it, by the way. I'm just telling you what some have said. That Chuzza is the man in John 4. And that he, Chuzza, Herod's steward, went down to Jesus, asked Jesus to heal his son. As a result of the miracle, he became a believer, and his whole household, his son and his wife, which it says in John 4. And that sometime after that, within the next few months, That family, Chuzza and Joanna, took opportunity to travel with Jesus and support him privately out of their own means because they were believers in him. So some have said that this nobleman, Herod's official, in John 4, is Chuzza, mentioned in John uh, Luke 8. I like the name Chuzza, by the way. If you're pregnant and you're looking for something, a name for your next kid, Chuzza is open, not a real popular one, so go ahead and feel free to use that. There's a second connection that some people have made, and this connection comes about 15 years after John 4, And for this, you would have to turn, if you wanted to, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Another connection to Herod. In Acts chapter 13, and this is about 15 years after the incidences in John 4. There were at Antioch, in the church there was, there are prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon. Now he's listing the prophets and teachers who were at Antioch, who served with the Apostle Paul as pastors in the church at Antioch. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So serving alongside Saul of Tarsus in the church in Antioch was a man named Menaean, who was the foster brother of Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist, and who was in Galilee, ruler over Galilee, that Herod the Tetrarch. Now some have suggested that Menaean is the royal official here of Herod's court whose son was healed, who became a believer, and 15 years later he is pastoring a church in Antioch. Now whether it's Chuzza or Menaean, 
Both of those would be speculation, and at the end of the day, we don't know. But it's an interesting connection, isn't it? And here's what you need to keep in mind. As you look at Herod Antipas, there were people in his administration and in his family and in his household who were believers in Jesus before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And there were some in his own household and some in his own court who financially contributed to Jesus' ministry, Joanna and Chuzza. Pretty wild, isn't it? Interesting connection. That's why it's my favorite part of the whole thing. Now, one last thing about this royal official, and then we'll close. This royal official would have been a man of great means. He would have been a wealthy man. He would have had access to any kind of financial help that he needed to pay for the best medical attention that he could have wanted for his son. He would have been a connected man. He could have talked with Herod. He could have talked with anybody in the administration. He could have had access to bring in anybody he wanted to heal or work on his son. And by this point, I would think that he has probably spent money trying to heal his son. He has had people attending to his son. He has done everything that he can to meet the need and to acquire whatever persons or resources or options it is in order to heal his son. It is not until he hears that Jesus has come out of Judea all the way up through Samaria and into Galilee that he comes to Jesus because his son was ill. He was a man of great means, a man of great connections. In spite of all of that, the fact that he came to Jesus and asked for Jesus to heal his son shows that he humbled himself before Christ. Here was a man who was a royal official of Herod Antipas, tetrarch over Galilee and Perea. A king. They called him the king. Here was a man in the king's court, almost the highest level of the social order, who is coming to beg assistance from a Galilean carpenter's son, one of the lowest ranks of the social order. That tells us two things. Number one, I think the man was desperate. And you're going to see the desperation come out as we get into the dialogue. He was desperate. He was at his wit's end. In spite of the reproof and in all of his begging and pleading, all he wants is Jesus to come and heal his son. He was a desperate man. So he was willing in his desperation to humble himself from being a royal official to saying to a Judean or a Galilean carpenter's son, please come and help me. He humbled himself before Jesus. But it tells us something else about him, and it is this, that he believed and he was convinced that Jesus had the ability, if he was willing, he had the ability to heal his son. He believed that. Now, maybe it was that he was at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and he saw and heard the miracle of turning the water into wine. Maybe it was that this royal official was in Jerusalem back in chapter 2, and he saw some of the signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem and believed on Jesus as a miracle worker back then. Or maybe he had only heard of the miracle in Cana of turning the water into wine. Maybe he had only heard of the miracle at the feast in Jerusalem back in John chapter 2. But whether he had heard or whether he was present, the man was convinced that if Jesus was willing, Jesus could heal his son. Now that is an imperfect faith. It is a faith that comes to Jesus and says, I believe that you are able. Please come and help me out. But what we're going to see in the rest of this miracle is what Jesus does with that imperfect faith. He takes the imperfect belief of this man who believes he is able, and Jesus, through the miracle and how the miracle is done, changes that faith into a abiding, believing confidence that ends up saving both himself and his entire household. That's what Jesus does with it. So who's the nobleman? He's a wealthy man, a man of means, but he's been humbled because he has been afflicted, 
And he comes to Jesus and he is convinced, as weak as his faith is, that this one is able to heal his son. And we'll pick it up next week and we'll see what God does and what Christ does with that weak and imperfect faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that you are good to us and that we have been able to delight ourselves in your word this morning. All of these connections and all of this information, we pray that you'd help us to keep it straight in our heads and our minds. But more than that, Lord, that these things would settle into our hearts and that we would learn that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think to those who will trust you and take you at your word. We thank you that you have shown yourself mighty over elements and over people, over life and over death and over distance. And that this is the God that we can trust and repose our souls in for salvation and for all good things. We thank you that we can come to you like this humbly and request your assistance in learning these things and applying them to our lives. We praise you for your grace and your kindness to us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.